Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police in Ireland. I'm Dr. V. Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police. I'm Carter Shea On the 2nd of June 2005, Terence Wheelock, a 20-year-old son, father, brother and friend, was arrested with a group of young men for the theft of a vehicle. He was detained at Store Street Garda Station and within a few short hours he was found unresponsive. He was transferred to hospital. He remained in a coma until the 16th of September 2005 when he died. Today, 15 years on from his death, I'm talking to some of Terence's siblings. Elaine, Sammy, Orla and Gavin, about Terence's death, the investigation into it and their harassment by Gardaí. We'll discuss their serious questions that remain for them regarding Terence's death and why they are calling for a public inquiry. He was a, a great kid. He friendly, all his friends loved him. His family loved him and he was such such a kind person. If you needed something, he was always the force to offer and help you out if he could. That's the type of person he was. And the most person that he was more attached to was say my mother. The way he looked upon my mother was your daughter. Mm. And she just had to say jump and he would do it. Mm. He was that kind of person. But he was a generous, generous kind person. And yeah, look, if you had met him yourself, you, you, would, you would have the same opinion. Yeah, he was very lovable. He was quite shy, especially if, you didn't know, if he didn't know you. He'd be very timid, but unless you got to know him, then you'd see his little character he was. Um, growing up, he loved pigeons. He'd be out all day, you know, looking for birds and pigeons. He loved snooker and pill he could spend hours in a snooker hall he loved day trips off he'd go off for the day very adventurous like he'd love going out to Dunleary and you know places like that spending the day out Um he used to bring um, stray dogs home a lot <laughs> yeah he'd bring stray dogs home and he'd say he'd have them out the back and he'd be coming in you know getting blankets and stuff for them <laughs> and feeding them and, and he'd say, Matt, can we keep it, you know? <laughs> if I, I lost count of many dogs, he'd bring home with him. He used to just feel sorry for them, you know? Yeah, again, as Sammy said, he'd do anything for you. Go out his way to help you. Yeah, I knew Terence from the time we were kids. Actually, when I spoke at the anniversary of when he was arrested there back in July, I told the family about memories that I had of Terence when we were kids. That's Gary Gallen, TD for Dublin Central. Terence was a little bit older than me and one day he went uh, out 
further out to Dunleary, I think, and I obviously wasn't allowed to go. And he brought me back a key ring. I just had that. I never, I don't know why, but that memory just came really into my mind over the last few months. It was just a real kindness. And then later on that day, um, I got into a fight with his younger brother, Gavin. And Terence wasn't happy that I was fighting with his younger brother, Gavin. So he wasn't going to, he gently put me on the ground. <laughs> actually, which I was very grateful for because he could have bashed me. But he wasn't going to let me hit his brother, but he certainly wasn't going to hit me either. Just a really... I don't know why, but those memories are just sticking in my mind at the moment about uh, Terence. Now, Terence wasn't really into football, but there was always so many moments where I've had uh, with him, where I'd be talking Man United, he'd be talking Liverpool, and he'd get into bus stops, but then after two minutes later, he'd be hugging and laughing and joking. And there's just, there was always competition when it came to football with him, man. He loved his football, so there's some of my most specific memories. But he loved life, always laughing, always joking. One of the most friendliest kids you'll ever meet. Yeah. That's who he was as a person. He was very artistic. He okay. used to love art. He was yeah. great at drawing, painting. Yeah, he loved all that kind of stuff. He was always wanted to try and learn you something more he knew. He used to always try to show me how to sketch. That's something I used to love about him. I'd always ask him to draw me something. He'd be able to draw from the top. It was one to just when he had his mind on something, he, that's it, it was done. He'd go on out of his way just to make sure he got it done. We had um, a little girl, Rebecca. She was three the month he died. So, like, she, he lost out, he missed out on her growing up. Um, she missed out on him being in our life, like, grew up without father. The last time I seen him was a couple of months before he died and I was walking in the centre and he came in very early and he wasn't in a great place. We hadn't seen each other for years, but um, I know, we just embraced as kind of old friends. It was really early in the morning in the centre and it was uh, quite a strange conversation. Just reminiscing about when we are kind of back in the day in Summer Hill and things like that. Terence grew up in North Inner City, Dublin, which was one of the most deprived areas in the country then and now, going by the National Deprivation Index. I discussed the policing of this community with Dr. Jonathan Alan of City University, London, who was in the area at the time conducting research on the policing of the community. Uh, yeah, in, in around 2005, I was uh, working in Inner City, Dublin, um, I spent a, a lot of time working with, with community there and young people within community, particularly those who had been in conflict with the law, and uh, spending some time as well with, with the guards themselves in the course of their duties. So trying to get a view from, I suppose, all sides of the equation around how inner city policing was working at the time and how the various different parties felt about each other. And what, how did they feel about each other? Um, well, whilst, you know, we have to avoid absolutely generalising, um, there, there were a couple of quite clear positions taken, certainly at the stronger end of each side of things. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of the community itself, there was a huge amount of distrust uh, around policing and the Gardaí. Um, for me, the interesting thing is this is, I found out this was historical. I mean, this this goes back an awfully long time. Um, but in in terms of what was happening, sort of in the the mid two thousands, and, and I'm imagining still happening today, 
is a sort of a classic situation of what 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 they call over policing and under protection that people in inner city communities felt that the police were sort of an outside alien force um, that that would descend to um, essentially to to put discipline on or to to interfere with the lives of, of people in the inner city, uh, but that this was not a force that could be used to, to help the community. So so the, the police would have been perceived by people in the area, not all people, but a significant section of people as the enemy. You know, so, so not just people that you don't trust, you know, although that is part of it, but people uh, or an institution that is at very best neglectful and alien um, and at worst hostile um, and interfering. That's a really strong word, enemy. And I I think for a lot of people, that's not their experience of the guards at all. The guards are someone you go to if you have a problem. So presumably that kind of relationship just did not exist. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd agree with you entirely. I mean, the, the notion of the police force as as a kind of uh, a service that is there for you uh, to, to help you, to protect you, to serve you is quite a, you know, certainly in Ireland where we don't talk about race so much, uh, would be quite a middle class phenomenon. This is something that those who are included in society would tend to feel. Those who are marginalised, those who feel that they're being, I suppose, left out of mainstream social and economic life, would perceive very often the police to be actually part of the force that keeps them excluded, um, and and thus, you know, as I said, uh, hostile, um, not worthy of trust, uh, and actively attempting to um, make their lives worse. Now, I'm, I'm not talking here about whether this is true or not. What I'm saying here is this is very much the perception. Yeah, and I mean, that's what, in a way, that's what matters, right? Because that's how people feel and it means that's going to shape how they engage with the police or how they don't engage with the police. 100%. And, and so in marginalised communities, there's, there's a huge taboo against ratting, snitching, grassing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the prevailing kind of norm is that you do not cooperate with the police um, and and this would be very well established taboo and I, I do note that this is something guards spoke about about how they kind of witnessed that being passed down generation to generation within the inner city and it does create difficulties as you can imagine in, in how you police an area so in terms of how say a middle class community would be policed or in terms of how your average Irish citizen would relate to the police, it's going to be very different to how those in the most excluded communities relate to the police. So the context of Terence's death is that for many in the community where he came from, the police were perceived as an agency that actively made their lives worse and sought to control them. The Wheelocks don't actually talk about the guards in quite such negative terms, but certainly had difficult experiences. You see, like we grew up in a rough area. Like there was a lot of criminality in the area. 
like even us as kids would be witnessing police pulling people over, searching their pockets and stuff. You'd witness them being like rough and tough on occasions with them. Um, even like kids as young as 10 and 11, they would just pull in, you know, take off your socks and shoes, making sure you'd nothing on them. And like Terrence was one of those kids on numerous occasions as well. So I wouldn't say like to please no. You know, it's just what we witnessed growing up, like what you were seeing. They always abused our authority, you know. Well, most of them anyway. Um, Terrence wasn't an angel. He was in trouble for Mickey Mouse things, but nothing very major. But the police, like if the police had it, went with the kids instead of against them, you know, interacted with them on a better basis. Maybe the kids would have a different outlook on the police. It was just more the way they went on with the kids mm. and stuff. That's the way the whole neighbourhood was. Most lads would say, look, there's the, there's the police. Some of them would go scarpering, basically running away. Even if they were innocent or carrying it on, the, the first thing was they'd be bounced off against the wall, as like living in somewhere hill at the time. If you were just walking down, even if you were just going to the shop, and the guards were coming up and there was two other guys ahead of you, you would see that they were being stopped, searched, and basically roughened. They'd be pushing them, pulling them, bouncing them off the wall, trying to get to search every single pocket. But like my sister says, if if they had interacted with the, the younger kids of that area and had a, a little bit more, they would have got probably would have got a lot more respect. Yeah. Because they abused their badge, because they that was their like in my own opinion, that was like a, an addiction for them, you know. Like the authority was the addiction, so they felt that they could do specifically what they like, especially to the young and innocent around there. Just because they're from that area, they must search. They must show them that we are who we are. You'll do what we say. Like they always made the children like feel like you were doing something wrong. You know, like you'd be walking them she would say, "Come here, you," and the kids always felt like. They were after doing something wrong or were in the wrong. You know, instead of being like, how are you? How's your day? Where are you off to? Just little things like that would have made a big difference. Now, not, obviously not all police are bad, but we had witnessed a lot of bad stuff. As my sister said, he was no angel. He did make mistakes. He was just a kid doing foolish things. But um, he was just any little, like as she would call it, Mickey Mouse thing. They were always on his case, badgering him, plucking at him, just trying to to get on his bad side to see if they can make the worst come out. But he would never let that happen. That's who he was. He was a proud kid. If you understand me, he was just a proud kid. Gary Gannon himself has similar memories of the guards. It's been impactful and it's impacted my it's impacted my relationship with the state, I'd imagine, because I've seen, like, I've seen a level of injustice that happens between the inner city community and the guards. I remember my mum was a street trader in town. My ma, I remember seeing my mum being kicked in the leg on Henry Street by a guard that everybody knew and knew was Boots. And I used to thought, knew, thought he was called Boots because he chased the women, but he was actually called Boots because he was kicking the women. And I remember seeing my mum being kicked 
I remember the guard holding me on Henry Street outside Penny's, telling me mad they were going to take them, going to take me off them because she was out street trading, and it was, I think it was about half eight in the morning. So she was coming back from the fruit market up in Henry Street, and she was bringing me back to Mulberry School. But they were assuming that she wasn't bringing me to school, and they were telling her that you were going to call social services on me. So I like I'd always, and then I'd seen other things as well, and that right. So I'd always had a kind of a difficult relationship with the guards being in the inner city, but. This one was different. Like you can't when you get the language to believe and people in the inner city believe and it's hard not that uh, a young man was murdered in a police station. It's hard not to be vociferously angry about that and to carry it with you and to have every interaction you have with the guards kind of having a dark cloud because of that. I asked Jonathan Alan what he found about the guard views of these communities and there's a lot of dimensions of cop culture that emerge. Well, I have to say a little bit of, of complexity there in that there you know the, there were there were a couple of different views it's fair to say um so what I call the kind of more muscular traditional view would be that you know okay whilst there's there are some decent people in the inner city there are a large proportion of what what the guard at the time called gougers you know these are incorrigible career criminals who can't be trusted um, and that the, the mission of the guards essentially is to protect ordinary, decent, law-abiding people from these gougers. And uh, this, the, the kind of the disciplining of the gouger and the thwarting of the gouger becomes very central to, to the mission of inner city policing. And you know, one of the findings I, I made is that that can really become wrapped up in, in the kind of identity of the job and in the emotional motivation to do it. To say, you know, in, in fairness to the force as a whole, there are other attitudes as well. You know, you do have um, a kind of, certainly at the inner city at the time, you did have quite strong ethos of community policing as well, uh, and, and different attitudes to that. But there, that, that kind of more muscular attitude was definitely observable, even if it, it was just a proportion of the force um, who would have held that. Terence was arrested on the 2nd of June. Yeah, it was a sunny morning. Terence was up painting his bedroom. I remember I was on, I was after finishing my last year of school, so it was summer holidays. And he came in and he was saying, my man's down there making a fry, you know, get up and stuff. So he went downstairs and he says to me, ma'am, I'm going to get a new paintbrush. He said, the one I'm using is no use, so I'll be back in a few and she was making him some tea anyway, so he was due back. Like. But he left the back way, and on his way to the paint shop, he bumped into a few friends who had apparently stole a car the night before. In the meantime, the police came down the lane. So obviously they all ran, and Terrence ran with them, because he looked guilty being there anyway. So they all ran through the front of the friend's house out onto the square, where there was more police waiting. So they all just hand themselves up, they weren't getting away anyway. Even the police said it was a very easy arrest, there was no struggle or anything, no one resisted. Um, now, how we learned of his arrest was, my younger brother Gavin's friend knocked at the door and he says to me, ma, Terence's being arrested, you know? And my ma got kind of a bit, oh, like, he's, like, she couldn't believe it, he was only had to leave in the house, she's like, how, like, could that be, you know? 
But I was like mad just leave, you know, he, he should be out soon. He's not in unfamiliar surroundings, not new to him, you know, like he'd be okay, like. It must have hurt her, like, she was like, where's Terence, the, the other fella's out? And we were like, oh, he's, he'd be grand, he'd be, he'd be home soon, like. It came to 20 to 4 that day, and three guards came into the garden of the house. I remember my mum was hanging up curtains at the time. We were just, me and my sister Elaine were ready to head into town. Elaine forgot her purse, so we went back to the house just as well we did, because my mum would answer them on her own. When we got back, the three guards walked into the garden and says to me, ma'am, are you Terence Wheelock's mother? And she says, yeah. He says, your son is after hanging himself. So blunt, um, didn't prepare me, ma'am. Didn't say, can I come in? Can you sit down? We have something to tell you, nothing. It was just so straight out. Now, me ma'am suffers with angina. She collapsed in the hall. To be honest with you, I wasn't, even thinking of Terence at this time, because the week previous, Terence had a shoulder, a collarbone injury he received from the police. He was in the Matter Hospital the week previous, complaining of it. So I assumed at this stage, oh look, he's up in the hospital, he probably has a broken arm, broken, you know, some minor anyway. So I ran and got my mum heart spray, and of course she came back around anyway, and I was saying to the police, like, oh, can you just leave, you know, because I didn't see the severity of it. And you were like, no, we need to take her to the hospital. So my sister Elaine and my mum went in the police car with them. So when we were walking up through the avenue to get to the police car, the guard got on the phone to someone and he says he's in St. James's Hospital. I'll take his day. So when we got in the car, he spun off real quick. They asked me, Ma and Elaine, when they got in the police car for directions to St. James's. Now, bear in mind, the matter is like a five-minute drive from Store Street on the north side of the city. Like, me mum was already distraught as it was, you know. Uh, so, anyway, they got to the hospital, and when they arrived, me ma went up to the desk and asked, have you got Terence Wheelock? And they were like, no, we don't have him here. I initially straight away rang James's hospital and they told me over the phone they hadn't got Terence there. So I just assumed he'd be in the matter and I rang the matter and inquired and they says we have him here and couldn't give information and I was like look it's my brother like we need to know and they said look he's in a critical condition. So we rushed like I rang my other sister and brother were in work and they thought the same thought I had earlier like I or like go up the hospital he's probably had something minor to him just and ring me straight away but I remember ringing them back and saying like I was on at the hospital he said he's in critical condition so they flew over we met each other and flew up the hospital and my mum and Elaine was after getting there and there was a doctor waiting on me, ma, and they brought her in. And at that time, they were walking on Terence in front of me, ma, my sister Elaine. Um, Jenny was brought to ICU. It was a horrible, horrible day. I, it will live with us for as long as we live. Like, it was traumatic. Yeah. Um, then Terence went on to fight. We were told it was a tourist day that he wouldn't make it the weekend but Terence went on to fight for three and a half months 
in a coma. He was in a coma, so he, he never was conscious, like. Mm. But he did fight as hard as he could. Like, we had to witness him deteriorate in front of our eyes. Yeah. We tried to do what we could for him, but it was what happened, you know? For the Wheelocks, doubts emerged instantly as to whether what the Guardi were telling them was accurate. We had a talk straight away. Something's not right here. And I remember my eldest brother, Lawrence, he was in the house, but he was asleep upstairs. And I ran up to him and I was like, the police are after St. Heron's that they're hanging himself. And he jumped like, and he ran down the stairs and he ran up the avenue as me man and Elaine were getting in the car. And I remember him saying the words like, this is in your hands. Gary Gannon recalled how immediately that shift took place. Everyone from the beginning was under the impression that he'd been attacked while in the cell, um, quite viciously by all accounts. And then I just remember the sense of injustice that was slowly starting to kind of build up around it. The doubts that the Wheelocks have stem from inconsistencies in various documents and accounts that have emerged. There were many about 15, but I think for people to understand the depth of their position, it's important to hear them all. The first question they have is whether he suffered an injury during the arrest. There was witnesses in the avenue at the time said they seen Terence being rough handled. Um, one witness said they seen his head being banged off the police van. Um, other witnesses heard him say, heard Terence saying, you're hurting me arm because of his injury he had prior to it. Yeah, so a lot of witnesses did say in the area, now I wasn't there when he was arrested, so I can't say, but when you're listening to this kind of stuff, it's making, makes you think a lot. I remember the do- me ma asking the doctor, how was my son like that in there when he was put on life support machine? And the doctor's words was, the massive blow he got to the head. And that lives with us. To this day, you know, makes you think. Because previous on the morning of his arrest, when the guards had arrested Terence, now others had witnessed there was a bit of a confuffle between the guard and Terence. But as they were putting them into the van, they hopped his head off the door. Mm. So what Laura was saying, regards, that's the part that sticks with us mostly. It's like even the lads that were involved in the, the theft of the car, they went down and had themselves up saying that it wasn't him, it was us. Yeah. But just because Terence was Terence and there was a couple of them in Star Street guard station that you could say were petty toward him, who liked to uh, like aggravate him and wind them up to just to try, so to speak, drive them crazy. They drive mad. But Terence knew better. Terence was that type of kid. He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't let them bother him and he wouldn't let them see that they bother him. He'd just laugh. That's the way he was. He'd just laugh. Do you know what I mean? He'd just laugh back. He'd say, you can do what you like, but I'm just going to laugh back at you. Yeah, I remember like the week before Terence was arrested. It was probably a few days before the 2nd of June. 
and an incident happened out in the area and I remember like the guard being real like on Terence's face and all but Terence lost the head a little bit and was shouting back at him you know like, he did know like he, they were shouting at him and getting smart and real up front to him and he was like giving hands his back but I always remember like the police always threatened him like oh we'll get you or you know stuff like that Quite a few of their doubts relate to some of the immediate things that occurred in the Garda station. When you're arrested in every station, one Garda is designated as the member in charge, whose duty is to ensure that your rights are upheld. They get you a doctor if you need one, your solicitor, they check on you, maintain a record. And this record is called the custody record. It documents every tiny thing that happens to you in the station. It's a really important document for any future prosecution. A number of questions arise from Terence's custody record. On Terence's custody record from the morning of the 2nd of June, they have to stay on that record, what marks bruising, etc. On it, they say Terence had a bruise and a burnt mark. I'm sure it was on the left arm but nothing else was wrote on it. When we got to the hospital, Terence had bruises all on his arms, his hands, his legs. He had a specific, like a grazed cut on his lower back. And he had, in the shape of like a half circle, two of these same marks on the left and right of his lower back. So where did these injuries come from? If Prior that morning, it was stated that he only had a burnt mark and a bruise on the left arm. Another thing about the custody record, I'll say, is everything has to be accurate on that. Mm -hmm. And there's a guard's name scribbled down and replaced with a lady guard's name. And it's visible. You can see his name, but it's just marked out. Nobody outside of the station managed to speak to Terence that day while he was being held at Store Street. The morning that uh, Terence, when he was arrested, he, he wanted to see his solicitor, so they apparently said, we're going to ring him now, so they ring him. And the solicitor had asked, can we sp- can I speak to him? And she said, what was it that she... Uh, that day, um, Terence requested Terry Lyons' solicitor. Mm-hmm. So... The police station apparently rang Terry Lyons' and they weren't available at that point. So they called back, they left a message and the solicitor was rang back and told them Terence and what he was arrested for and whatever. She asked could Terence be brought to the phone and a guard, she said, sorry, I'm not actually dealing. It was Fitzgibbon Street Police that arrested Terence that day. That's what the Vanguardian duty said. I'll get him to call you back. So then this guard rings this lister and it's lister asks, could Terence speak? Oh, could you speak to Terence? Could he be brought to the phone? And he says something like, he's at the public desk. Terence is a bit away. It will take a while for Terence to be put on the phone. Now that does not make one bit of sense to me. If he's in that station and Terence is down the corridor in a cell, they just go and get him now. Yeah. Well, you have a constitutional right to speak to your solicitor. Absolutely. So we've no voice for Terence that day either. 
because surely you would have told this solicitor if you got a chance to speak to her whether he was being mistreated or not. When Terence was arrested, um, the guy he was arrested with told us that the police were taunting Terence over his mobile phone. They went through his phone, it was messages from a girl or whatever, and he was reading it out. And Terence was saying to him, knock off my phone. So they were annoying him anyway, from what we heard. And then they heard like a scuffle. So. When you're listening to all this stuff, it makes you question a lot. Mm. And another thing on the custody records that makes us think a lot is prisoner being checked on intervals of, I think it's 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. And it says prisoner asleep, all okay, prisoner asleep, all okay, prisoner asleep, all okay. So basically Terence was asleep all this time. And then I remember at the bottom of the custody record, it, there was a gap of like 25 minutes. Mm. And then apparently a vanguard, he went to check on Terence and he wasn't visible through the hatch. And apparently when she opened the door, Terence was sitting on the floor hanging from a buzzer on the wall. It took apparently 10 minutes to call an ambulance for Terence that day, which is vital time. Mm -hmm. Why the delay? Like everything was down that day in Stoshi. Phones, clocks, everything was down. Some of the questions the family have relate to how Gardy behaved in the immediate aftermath. Actions which feel very suspicious to the Wheelock family in this whole context. When we got there, me and my mum and one of the guards got out of the car and walked in to the reception. We were talking to the girl. My man says, do you have um, Terence Wheelock here? She goes, um, I'll check for you now. She went and checked. She says, there's no, no one with that name here. Are you sure can check you? And she says, uh, well, my man explained that he was in Star Street. She says, um, I think he would have been brought straight to the matter. She says, I don't see a reason for him to be brought over here. We believe the police was buying time that day when they sent the family to a different hospital on the south side of the city. And it was just that I happened to ring the, the hospital and we got there and seen the police there. But when we arrived on the grounds of the hospital, there was a police car parked there and two guards walked out. Apparently a guard was appointed to investigate this. He served 15 years in Star Street Police Station. <coughs> so he would be one of the police that was walking now with Terence's belongings in a bag. They were visible in the bag. And my brother Lawrence ran over and was like, they're my brother's clothes, what are you doing with them? And he said, oh, there's an investigation going on. So there's another question that arises to us, like why was the cell cleaned up? You know, before it could be examined. Yeah. As regards to what Arla was saying there about uh, the cell, it was more of um, a delay tactic. That's what my entire family believe. They were wasting time just so whatever they were doing in that cell was any trace evidence or any of that type of thing. They could clean it up or do whatever. Yeah, the, the cell was um, cleaned and stuff. Like when Terence got to the hospital, 
there you go, cleaners into that cell and cleaned it all up. If that was being investigated, nothing should have... Should we touch there, like, the, like uh, so they did say there was vomit and stuff like that, just, but any photographs, that would have been taken, they would, would have took a photograph of, uh, so said, vomit or anything else that was mm. there, but it's like they reconstructed the whole cell, as Arla was saying. Just so whatever they were doing in that cell was any trace evidence or any of that type of thing. They could clean it up or do whatever. That's what we believe it was, so they could get rid of the clothes. The clothes that like himself had went missing for like fifteen years or so. So we've we've been tracing them down, tracking them down for a long time trying to find them. Yeah, I remember we had to go to court to even fight to get the clothes back. Mm. Uh, the clothes were forensically examined and stuff, so there was blood and vomit and stuff on them. But we hadn't seen them clothes and we fought for a long time to trace them and find them. This investigative process went on for years and has only recently yielded any results. Going back a few weeks ago, I got on to Store Street to get the clothes. And Store Street, it was a bit of a, you know, like it was going on for ages, you know, I was emailing back and forward and they were like, oh, we sent your email to the department. Um, then I emailed again, they were like, so sorry, um, I will be back in touch with you. Uh, emailed the final time I got really like annoyed, you know, in the email, like, so they sent, so sorry, um, the ombudsman, they had found out the ombudsman was last with the stuff. I got on to the ombudsman and the guy out there office was saying, oh, we look into it and stuff. So I was back and forward on the phone with him over a few weeks. And he rang me one morning and says, hi, Orlet, such and such here. We can't find Terence's belongings. And I said, that's very strange, isn't it? They were last in your care. And um, we need them, we want them, like, they hold vital evidence. So he said, I'll, I'll exhaust the search and I'll get back in contact with you. So he rang me the following week and he says, hi, Orla, such and such. Uh, we found Terence's stuff. I don't know what's in the, the bags. I don't know what condition they're in. But when you come in, we, I'll go through them with you. So we arranged a day and me and my dad went over to the ombudsman office and these bags were brought out, the forensic bags and stuff. So he laid out what he had, what items was in it. And I noticed Terence's bottoms was dairy socks. Runners, his money he went to get a paintbrush with, was still there 15 years later. His mobile phone, and he wasn't very talkative, the ombudsman, you know. We were asking some questions, but it was real, like the answers we were getting, well, I wasn't here at the time, you know. That's all I kept getting back. Asking when they received the clothes and stuff, and he was saying in 2009 and stuff like that. Um, what I did notice was, he said, so that's, yeah. So he took pictures of everything and that he was giving back to me. And he goes, so that's everything. And I said, um, where's Terence's T-shirt? And where's the cord out of his tracksuit bottoms? Apparently it was the ligature out of his tracksuit bottoms he used mm. to apparently commit suicide in the police station that day. 
he looked at me, he was a bit shocked, you know, he was like, oh, I don't know, you know, oh, I'll have to look, there's Atheon boxes in there belongs to Terence. We're a few weeks back, like you couldn't find the stuff. It was just, it was weird, it was strange. Um, so I said to him, I'd like to get this t-shirt as it holds vital evidence and the cord is really important to us and I want to see it. What I noticed about the clothes when I took them home, put them under like a torch, you know, when you look, they were dark bottoms. Yeah, there was blood on them, specks of blood. And um, there was the cord part, the cord, the cord area of the tracks bottoms was cut really clean. So it makes me think, and this is what I'm just assuming, like that was probably even took out of his tracks bottoms before he went into cell, because the police always take off yeah. stuff like that. Like Terence didn't cut it off out, like he wouldn't have had his scissors with him anyway. So um just that just had us thinking again and again, like, you know, what really happened that day. It's just too strange. So to this day we haven't had the t shirt or the cord back. And the cord being cut out like that doesn't fit with the story that he removed it in the cell and used it as the ligature. It, absolutely not. You know, I mean, there's two holes on the front of tracks of buttons, shorts, etc. You would just have to pull a cord out yeah. if you wanted to remove it. Um, so it is like guidelines put in place in a station that you're not allowed into a cell with anything that you could yeah. harm yourself with. Yeah. So like, as she was saying, that, cut, that line that was cut to take it out, so any person would say that it was a straight line. It wasn't like it was pulled or dragged. It was just an even cut. Like it was just used by a scissors. And the thing that strikes me most is that it is 15 years and this is something you've just learned. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's really crazy. It's very questionable. Like, as I said, if they, if Terence had have committed suicide, that's no problem. Like, Obviously, it would have been a problem, but I mean, we would have had to accept that. But it was the way the police went on. Like, you were being harassed, hiding clothes. You know, they were making things very hard on us. Some of the details about how Terence was supposed to have taken his life do not add up for the Wheelocks. Terence was, like, six foot. The buzzer, I think, was, like, three, four foot high off the ground makes us question as well, like, he had to dig into a wall with his bare nails, um, get this cord, apparently, from his bottoms, put it around it, and, you know, and just hang himself. She says he was, when he was found, it's, it's horrible to even say, but yeah. she says, like, his head was lying back at the wall, and it make, like, I do often sit and think, like, if I was in that position, okay, like, I could have just jumped on my feet if I felt pressure on my neck. Stuff like that. You know, like, you are low. You could have just got back up. So, um, yeah, digging into concrete with his nails. You've had an independent kind of engineer look at that. That's actual buzzer, haven't you? We did. And in his report... He was given photographs of the, the cell and he states that he believes it was like reconstructed 
Like it was all reconstructed. It wasn't as it was apparently when Terence was there. In his opinion, he feels that. He tried to use his glasses string to get around that this buzzer in question. And he said he had a bit of difficulty. And a glasses string would be a lot thinner than a cordial tracks of buttons. Mm. So he said he had a bit of difficulty. I remember reading somewhere he needed a tool with him in order to do what Terence was supposed to have done. Underlying all of this is the Wheelock's belief that Terence was not suicidal and was not displaying suicidal behaviours. For starters, Terence had plans the next night. He went out and bought new clothes and stuff. We were going to a party. That morning I seen him, he was in great, great humour. A guard that was involved in the arrest said in court Terence was in high spirits. That morning he was singing in the van, you know. So it just makes you question a lot. Well, actually, can I just ask that? So you do not believe that Terence took his own life? No. Absolutely not. And everyone is entitled to their own beliefs on this case. Everyone has their own opinions and that's perfectly fine. We as a family, from what we went through with police, from like having to chase clothes, if Terence took his own life, why? Why this? Why chase clothes? Why put up a harassment? You know, it, it just got so bad, like. So what do you believe happened to Terence that day? Um, we believe Terence got into a scuffle with the police in the station that day. And we believe maybe he did get a smack in the head and it went too far. And we also believe that if you look on the custody record, Terence is asleep all that length. Maybe Terence was unconscious all that length. Also looking at his injuries on his body, we definitely believed he was harmed. Um, so we came to a conclusion that maybe Terence wasn't coming around now and these had to come up with something. And suicide was their story. In this part of the episode, 15 years on from his death, we remember Terence, the brother, father and friend. We've discussed the context of policing and community relations in the North Inner City. We've discussed what happened on the 2nd of June 2005 and the legacy of questions his family are left with. Questions which I think any family would have in such circumstances. In the next part, we'll talk about the investigations which have occurred into Terence's death, as well as the harassment which the Wheelock family believe they've endured since. The second part will be released to Patreon subscribers shortly and to others at the weekend. But if you think this work is important and want to hear more of it, we encourage you to go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise and subscribe for the price of a cuppa a week. Follow us on Twitter at Policed Podcast. <laughs>